There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverti. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Hello, it's Michael of the 26.2 Miles here, and Mark's directly in front of me, actually. Yes, no need to raise your voice, Michael, because I'm uh, inches away from you. We are physically together, in not in that sense, of course. Uh, well, although, it is in that sense, surely. Yes, but physically together can mean um, rude things, can't it? Well, every time we kind of lean forward, it's like we're about to kiss because the microphone is directly in between us, and it's lots of direct eye contact, actually. Yes, we've gone from our usual socially distanced and physically, geographically distanced state to being, as you say, close enough to um, have sex. <laughs> but we're not here to do that, even though we are in a hotel room. We are here to introduce the... Before we do introduce a new episode, though, you've already touched on it very subtly. Uh, it would be inappropriate not to mention your gargantuan feat of running last week. An athlete, you say? Well, well uh, your words, not mine. But yes, I, I survived. Not mine either, I don't think. <laughs> uh, you more than survived, Michael. You ran 26 miles uh, and that extra bit on the end and raised... In the end, seven grand? Uh, yeah, seven and a half thousand pounds, and a wee bit more with gift aid as well, which makes it about eight point five thousand pounds, which is amazing. So thank you to everybody who donated, and um, it was an emotional trip. It was a lot more emotional than I thought it was going to be, but um, yeah, very proud to have run the marathon for the first and last time. Well done, me. Yes, one marathon each by us now, and it looks as if that's where the game ends. <laughs> yeah. You say you were surprised by how emotional it was. I wasn't. I said to Coop, literally during the afternoon he'll be crying about now I was from mile 20 to 26 I cried the entire way but it was mostly happy tears yeah in fact loads of people slipped over and didn't finish right because you you would uh, (laughs) you were a safety hazard in the end (laughs) enough about me and my athletics though Um, this week we have been joined on our Menkind Patreon by lovely Melissa and Jessica so thank you welcome happy Monday to you both Yes, as a traditional, we wish you a happier Monday than anybody else, even though it <laughs> can seem a bit unfair, that, but uh, that's just that's the way the world goes, and um, it only lasts four today, so make the most of your uh, particularly blessed Monday. And if anyone else wants a blessed Monday, Mark, what can they do? Well, what I would advise doing is sort of sauntering over to uh, patreon.com slash 
uh, Mankind Podcast. You have you've to think a, about the name of the podcast then. No, I was you? trying to think of the, the forward slash thing because you've got a different way. Forward of, stroke. Forward stroke. I was trying to remember last week. It just you feels said, a bit more kind of seductive, doesn't it? Forward stroke. Yes, I've certainly I've felt less horny than this. Yes. <laughs> I, for whatever reason, I just feel naughty. I feel like changing the tone of the podcast. Um, <laughs> this week we I don't have even like the word horny. It's horrible. Anyway, this week we have the lovely Juno Dawson, who many of you will know. She's a brilliant author and actress, and she's been. Um, well, she was in a bit of a problematic role in I May Destroy You, but she's very, very good. Yes, I mentioned last week during the preview of this episode that uh, June is also someone that has been requested by listeners before. So we were very pleased to nail her down. And it was, uh, well, we really enjoyed meeting her. I'd never even met her, had you? Uh, no, but she was brilliant and funny, and I think you're going to enjoy it. We got on. Wiggle on. No, we got on. As, oh. a, as a collective, we got on. Yeah, we but also, yeah, enjoy the podcast and wiggle on. <laughs> wiggle on. <laughs> So this week we are joined, as ever, by Mark, but more importantly, I think, by Juno Dawson. Hello, Juno. Hello. Could you say who you are, please? I will. My name is Juno Dawson. I am an author and a screenwriter, very occasional actress, very occasionally, very occasionally. (laughs) And my new book, Stay Another Day, is out kind of now. Very exciting. I think I saw you in I May Destroy You, did I not, last year? So I popped up in I May Destroy You. I mean, what a thing to have on your CV. I'm in it for about a minute and a half. Blink and you will miss me. But yeah, you know, nobody can take it away. I was in I May Destroy You. It's one of those situations where if you're not looking for Juno Dawson, you're not going to find it. I'm Michaela Cole. No, um, <laughs> I was the casting agent who auditions Warushe's character yeah, when she yeah. auditions for the Dove commercial. Uh, yes. They ask her to take her wig off. Racist. I remember that. That was you. That was me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are an occasional racist on television. I am a fictional racist. Yeah, let's get that. <laughs> I don't want to be quoted out of context on that one. And then I did Holby City for six weeks as well, which we filmed during the big lockdown last winter, which was really weird. Yeah. A singular way to spend lockdown. Yes, a very specific lockdown involving pretending to be in a hospital. It was so, so strange and so stressful. You couldn't talk to the other cast members. We really were shut in our changing rooms and we were just allowed on set when it was literally time to cry action. So it was very odd. (laughs) Yeah, I had a similar experience where I did an animated show and uh, I did a sort of mocking tweet saying amazing to work with all these people because it was a great cast list but I had not been allowed to meet or speak to or see absolutely any of them it might as well have all recorded it on different planets but there we are these days you're out in the world we're back we're free you both published books didn't you you published what's the tea last year do you know yeah so we delayed it a bit it was originally due out in the August of 2020 and because of bookshops being shut we decided to hold it back until February 2021 when, of course, bookshops were still shut. That one didn't work out quite the way we anticipated. But in a strange way, independent bookshops really rallied around us and a couple of Mm. bookshops did like big pre-order campaigns and stuff. So actually being in lockdown didn't particularly hurt its chances. Uh, I think it's worth asking at this point, Gina, because this question is pertinent to who you are, how you see yourself. People often say that I'm prolific. Your output is pretty astonishing. Even the fact we're talking about a book last year and another book this year. Mm. You've written a number of books, which makes both me and Michael and most people I know look like absolute idlers. (laughs) Is there a specific (laughs) trick of productivity you have or is work ethic something you specifically pride yourself on? I'm interested in people who produce as much work as you do, basically. Do you know what it is? There was no safety net. You know, I gave up my day job 10 years ago this year. I used to be a primary school teacher. Mm. And 
everybody in publishing said, do not give up your day job. <laughs> yeah. And they were completely right. That was the correct advice. Because really, really quickly, I started running out of money. <laughs> and my mum and dad are both from working class backgrounds. And so it really was, the more you write, the more money you will make. Mm. And I very quickly cottoned on. But being a freelance writer is like being a freelance plumber. You know, the more toilets you fix, the more you get paid. <laughs> so it really was just a case of the hustle. I loved writing and I really wanted to be able to do it full time. Yeah. I just had to work and work and work and work. Yeah, you put your finger on it. As writers, we basically are just wandering around looking for toilets. Yes, to fix. To fix. Looking for broken toilets is our job. Exactly. <laughs> so let's dive into our first question that we always ask, which is about what you think of when you think of masculinity and when you kind of first remember being presented with that notion? It's a difficult one. I mean, literally one of the many toilets I have fixed <laughs> was a book called The Gender Games, which was kind of my sort of manifesto around gender mm. and how I think it is quite a damaging thing. And it's interesting because the phrase gender critical has come to mean something very dark and unpleasant. Yeah. Whereas actually, I think any sensible human being should be quite critical of gender. Just not in the way that people are. <laughs> Just not in the way that social media means it. Yeah. But I... <laughs> Spoilers, you know, I was born male. Everybody assumed I was male. I was told I was a boy. And really my very, very earliest childhood memories were of getting it wrong mm. because I just wasn't behaving in the way that a boy was supposed to. Mm. And so that's how I know gender is real. That's how I know it is a very concrete thing in our society because people kept telling me to stop behaving the way I was behaving and start behaving like this. Like, why are you always playing with girls? Why will you not play football with the boys? Mm. You know, why are you playing with your sister's toys? You know, I remember having like a lie down tantrum in Toys R Us because I wasn't allowed this amazing winter Barbie with her fur cape. Understandable tantrum, I think. Right? She was fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and just, I remember the glee at having learned to click my fingers and skip came at around the same time. And so I would skip around clicking my fingers, which was such a mood. <laughs> but I was told off. You know, I was told to stop that joyful scampering. And so, bizarrely, I learned what masculinity was by omission mm. because it was all the things I wasn't doing basically correct me if I'm wrong but I think you've said before that when you visualise yourself as an adult it was as a woman oh always yeah I had this very distinct notion of who I was going to be you know I was very influenced by sort of the TV that I was watching and like a lot of kids I was very excited about being a teenager and I knew that had I been assigned female at birth I would have been called Katie and so I had this very vivid idea of what Katie Dawson would look like and all through my childhood, I just daydreamed constantly about, you know, Katie will have long blonde hair, Katie will be an air stewardess, Katie will go out with Luke Perry. You know, it was really, really vivid. <laughs> yeah, very detailed. But I just thought that's what people did. I thought that's what childhood was like. It was just about daydreaming about this parallel world where you were a girl. And I didn't realise that you could just dream about your own future. I thought everybody dreamed of someone else's future, kind of. That's really interesting. So when you looked around at people you knew, you you assumed they were also projecting future versions of themselves that were maybe really, really different. Yeah. Like radically different in the way yours was. When I was a kid, so I'm not going to name names because I don't know where this person ended up and I don't know if they did eventually transition, but one of my very closest friends mm. was assigned female at birth, but she talked all the time about how she just wanted to be a boy. We knew it was naughty because when you are assigned male at birth and tell people you want to be a girl, you get made fun of or you get told to be quiet, which is what happened to me. But me and that little girl or that little person 
person, whoever they became, mm. we were able to quite secretly talk about the fact we wanted to change gender, I guess. Yeah, you could see behind each other's curtains sort of thing. Mm. I mean, that's kind of revolutionary at the time, I suppose, yeah. because of Section 28. And you've mentioned it previously in other places about Section 28 coming in, mm. I think, the year that you went to school. Is that right? Yeah, it came in the year I started primary school right. and it was abolished the year I graduated university. Oh my gosh. So it really <laughs> did cover my education neatly. Yeah, they made sure that you didn't get a second in education while you were allowed to talk about it. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the maddest thing. But I mean, by the end, things were changing. And actually, by the end of the 90s, Channel 4 had made some materials which showed a lesbian couple. Yeah. So I then had that material when I was a teacher. Right. Officially, my teachers weren't even allowed to mention. I remember my A-level biology teacher did. He told me to beware bisexual people because they were sluts. Oh. That was the message from my A-level biology teacher. <laughs> was that part of the A-level syllabus or was that him freelancing a bit? I think that was him going rogue. I'm not <laughs> sure that was in the national curriculum of 1998. It doesn't sound like you'd hear that on an exam paper, no. No. Just for foreign listeners who might not know what Section 28 is, could you mind just doing a wee precy, as it were? Oh, look at me using French words. Oh, Michael's face is so pleased with himself. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's a French word which has come into the English language. All right, thank you. <laughs> in a nutshell, Section 28 was a piece of legislation brought in by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in the late 80s, which forbade any public authority, so schools, libraries, social workers, from promoting homosexual lifestyles. So basically, teachers weren't allowed to suggest that being gay or lesbian was somehow equivalent to being straight. Mm. But it was very slippery wording, which basically just terrified teachers into silence. Mm. And it all came about over a children's book called Jenny Lives With, I believe, Derek and Martin. Mm. Oh, poor Derek and Martin. A little hiccup for Derek and Martin. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this book portrayed a pair of dads. That's right, yeah. And the Daily Mail did an expose about how this book was in school libraries and there was a big moral panic. And as we still see now, reacting to a moral panic is such a cheap and easy way to mop up a few right-wing votes. So, yeah. The Daily Mail was a bit like that in those days, by the sound of it. Luckily, it's much more liberal now. Of course. And it feels so sort of fabricated, doesn't it? A moral panic like that. Nobody really cares. As you say, it's purely about posturing and politics. Of course. This is what certain parties stand for. And I think... Now, when we look to America or the United Kingdom, our politics have schismed even further and you mm. kind of have these flashpoint issues which are leveraged to signal either your left-wing values or your right-wing values. Yeah. And it feels like politics has become ever more divided, especially in America where, you know, you had Trump before the last election going further and further right, mm. but then Biden and Harris going further left and being much more mindful of talking about climate change and trans rights and we're moving further apart. Yeah, in that process, things which ought to be areas of common humanity just end up being these bizarre left or right sort of sticks to beat each other with. Like yesterday, I saw a Republican being asked exactly, as you say, about climate change. And within moments, he'd got on to trans people somehow. And there was absolutely no logical through line at all, except, well, I'm a right winger, so I don't really agree with climate change legislation. And also, while we're at it, it's probably trans people's fault. It's incredible how polarised it's become in a way which deprives us of any sort of sense of being a human family. It's absolute madness. And a moral panic nearly always a distraction from the real issues. Mm. Mm. When we look at the society that we're living in now, in a post-pandemic, post-Brexit, the least of our worries is 0.7% of the trans population. You know, we're 
such a tiny minority group. Mm. Our lives have next to no impact on anybody else's lives. And yet, it's a definite headline grabber. You know, mm. it's something that will definitely clog up a few tabloids if we mention trans people, because we've had 12 years now of uninterrupted conservative rule. Any issues in our society are definitely down to them. Mm. We're getting to the point where we can't really blame previous administrations. So really shy of saying the mess we're in is our fault. It's much, much easier to say refugee crisis, (laughs) trans people, you know, jump to one of the moral panics because that's quicker. It does feel as if this government could be in power for 50 years and still be talking about their mopping up the mistakes of the previous administration. Oh, please not 50 years. (laughs) Well, yeah. We'll see. Going back all the way down to when you were younger, I think it's really interesting because lots of our guests have shared that experience across however they identify. They've all basically said they couldn't relate to masculinity in some way. And Mm. that's been really fascinating. You then began to find your identity, I suppose, at school. I know you've mentioned the Spice Girls before as being a, a monumental moment as i think they were for most of us you definitely have mentioned them before yeah once or twice (laughs) how did you start to kind of figure out your identity in a structure where people were not giving you the tools yeah well this is where the media becomes incredibly powerful and the media is both the message and the messenger and this is why i am kind of in awe at the power of the media and why i also think we should be really scared because you know the media was hugely influential in that the stories I was seeing through the mainstream media, you know, started to change. We had Ellen coming out. We had gay characters in Hollyoaks. We had gay characters in Grange Hill. We had Willow in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Will and Grace. You know, bit by bit, I became aware that there were LGB. Mm, Full stop. (laughs) Because I think that's important. I became very aware that there were lesbian, gay and bisexual people in the world. But the acronym ended there. The acronym very much ended there. So I remember once being quite young and I was at my family GP. I don't know if I was sick or my sister was sick. Someone was sick. And I was reading like a Bella or Women's Own, you know, one of those trashy weekly women's magazines. And there was this really super sensational piece about sex change Barbie shock. And they'd found some trans woman who had had a bunch of plastic surgery to look like Barbie. And that was kind of her deal. Power to you. Mm. And I remember it was presented as such a freak show. But that was the first time I understood that people could change their gender. How old were you then, roughly? I reckon I would have been about eight. So quite young still. Yeah. Yeah, quite young. But it was such a freak show. And then, you know, all through the 80s and 90s, trans people were the butt of the joke. Yeah, and that phrase sex change is quite sort of violent sounding, isn't it? For surgical. Yeah. yeah, very, very surgical. Like a sex change is an operation that you do. Exactly, yeah. It's not about how you feel or about how you regard yourself. It's about, at the time, an impossibly expensive operation as well. Kind of something that was beyond mortal people. And that made you into some sort of a freak in the eyes of most yeah, yeah and again the power of the media you know so you sort of had sean young's character in ace ventura pet detective who is villainous you've got buffalo bill in silence of the lambs you know these incredibly negative portrayals of trans people and really the first time i saw in the media a trans person whose experience was in some way compatible with mine mm. was reality tv and i think the dawn of reality tv really kind of democratized 
queerness on TV because it wasn't some nice straight Coronation Street writer writing Hayley Cropper, you know, as the perfect doyen of trans loveliness. It was actual people. It was real people. There was a really gross ethos called There's Something About Miriam, which... When you think about it now, you're just like, what as a society were we taking? (laughs) And the idea about Miriam was they found a Mexican transgender woman called Miriam. They made a great song and dance about the fact that she hadn't had bottom surgery. So, you know, she was like, this is a woman. She has a penis. And then they got 10 straight men into this villa somewhere sunny. And it was like a dating show and they all had to compete for the affection of Miriam. The finale, after she'd picked her bachelor, the presenter was like, psych, she has a penis. Oh, God. And that was the whole format of the show. And then there were lawsuits because the men claimed they'd been sexually assaulted because they'd kissed her. You know, and even the producers of the show, I remember them saying, you know, we don't see Miriam as being male or female. And I was like... Oh. That's convenient now, isn't it? That works. (laughs) Right. And then, of course, Nadia in Big Brother, who was a somewhat fairer representation, but, of course, she never talked about being trans when she was in the house because she was what we would call stealth. We've revised Nadia's history, I think. When housemates were evicted from the Big Brother house, the glee with which Davina McCall announced that Nadia was trans is quite ghoulish now when you look back on it. Sorry, what do we mean by stealth? Just undercover as a trans yeah she never told anyone she was trans yeah. she was just like my name is nadia i am portuguese i am a woman and that's all you need to know but davina used to tell people i don't remember this series i don't think davina used to tell people when they came out yes wow. she would rock in her chin like you know nadia oh, that's a really good inf- i wish you could see this <laughs> you know nadia she's trans transsexual she's transgender you know i don't think she went so far as to misgender her but you know it was a real gotcha moment, kind of. If you would like to see a Davina impression, uh, head over to our Patreon. Uh, I was just going to say, <laughs> that is basically TV material. Uh, you know, I've met Davina since, and she's lovely. And oh, yeah. In yeah. no way would Davina seek to harm an LGBTQ person. She's a true ally. Of course. But that was 2005. That was the environment, that's all. That was the time that, you know, being trans was a twist, a plot twist. It's really interesting. It never occurred to me that having so many reality shows, which are often maligned, has led to a fair representation of society as it is than if we just allowed a lot of straight white people to script it. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating that the only education you had on the fact that there were trans people in the world were all from a media that didn't understand how to basically handle yeah. people. When did you find a good example of a trans person? Or how did you find in yourself, this is who I am and this is how I need to be? How did that happen, I suppose, against the number one, lack of information and number two, negative representations wherever you were seeing? I think the media evolved and there was a brief glowing period I would say between like 2010 and 2015, where it felt like trans people were making real and interesting inroads into the media. Mm. It was a kind of pre-backlash, I guess. And I started to see trans women who weren't pantomime dames or monsters. So those were the two kinds of trans women that I had seen in the media up until around 2010. I had also started to meet trans people in real life. So I moved to London in 2011 and... London is truly more diverse than where I was living in Brighton. Brighton, as queer as it is, it's a bit of a monoculture, it has to be said. A lot of kind of white gay men and lesbians in particular. Uh I love Brighton, I still live there. But (laughs) London was way more diverse, including younger trans people. And this sounds incredibly shallow, but also hot trans people. (laughs) I started to realise that, you know, being trans wasn't to be monstrous. You know, I think I'd always been told my whole life that to be trans was in some way 
freakish. But then when I met people like Andrea Pejic, Paris Lees, Isla Holden, Munra Bergdorf, you know, mm. these are women who are smart and wise and powerful and also really hot. You know, no <laughs> one, no one is going to accuse those women of being monstrous. They're stunners. And importantly as well, having the interaction. So when it's you on the internet or you with a TV screen, mm. there's no back and forth. You're just receiving the information. Whereas when I was able to actually sit down with trans people, and in particular, there was a trans man from Brighton, a guy called Rory Finn. We got talking about his transition in his childhood and basically our childhoods were the same childhood. And it was actually that conversation that made me realize, gosh, you know, my childhood is way more like his childhood than it's like a lot of my gay friends. Mm. And the real watershed moment for me, it was New Year's Day 2012, I want to say. And I had the most steaming, steaming hangover. I'd been to push the button at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. Yeah. I was dying, absolutely steaming. And we went for like the recovery fry up the next day somewhere in Stockwell. Very good. Thank you. And I can eat. I was much too poly. I was just sipping a peppermint tea like a true survivor. <laughs> yeah, no food for me. Thank you. I've been through it. No solids. Thank you. And um, I remember I was with a group of gay men and I was talking about gender and I just said, oh, didn't we all want to be girls when we were kids? And they were like, no, mm. not one of them had spent their childhood imagining themselves as a girl. They knew they fancied boys. They knew they liked Dean Kane, but they were very happy with who they were. You know, they imagined themselves as boys growing into men. And that's when I realized, uh-oh, we've got a problem here because fundamentally you just don't see yourself as a boy and never really have. And that was when... I put the wheels in motion. Yeah, this is why I was very interested by you saying that you had always visualised yourself as an adult woman. Yeah. Because of the trans people we've spoken to, I don't think many of them did have that experience. I think most of them had some sort of unease with who they were being asked to be, but mm. very few of them had such a clearly defined sense of themselves as a woman from the get-go. So that is interesting. I think as well, I mean, I wonder if the imagination is a muscle, you know, and yeah. I sometimes wonder if that's another part of why I'm so prolific, because, you know, I've spent my whole life imagining. Yeah, telling yourself stories of what could be. Exactly, yeah. So it's perhaps not surprising that you've ended up being a writer stroke toilet specialist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
We always ask about role models when you're growing up. We actually ask about men because we think that's quite an interesting dynamic. Were there any men that you looked up to when you were younger, but also now? Okay, so this is a difficult one. Mm. I did think about lying, <laughs> but actually, I think I need to honour sort of my experience and say that my history with men was really difficult and complicated. Yeah, and you know, mm. I was perhaps well into my teens before I met adult men that I identified with and weren't desperately trying to get me to be something else. Mm. And, you know, I understand now I've got a really good relationship with my dad now, and he's been one of the most vocal champions of my transition. He's been an absolute rock. But in my childhood, he was the person most involved in trying to get me to be a boy, you know, and so we were completely Mm. at odds. So I kind of retreated from him. So my mum and dad broke up. So I was largely raised by women, Mm. a real coven of divorced women. (laughs) My mum was the first of her group to get divorced, but she certainly wasn't the last. And so before long, we were part of this. It's funny because they wouldn't use the word commune or coven, or they certainly wouldn't use the word feminist. But I was raised by this kind of community of single women that all had kids at around the same time. And so we carouseled around all these incredibly independent women who were just coping and they juggled work and childcare. I don't think I'm particularly sad about it, but there really weren't a lot of men in my childhood. Mm. And then I got to high school where there were some male teachers. And this might not come as a surprise, or maybe it will. But the problem is, as soon as adult men showed me a teenage queer person kindness, well, you can guess what happened. Yeah. I just fell in yeah. love with them. You fell in love, yeah. And so my first love affairs were obsessive relationships with my high school teachers, yeah. which is quite unhealthy. <laughs> but my first love was my maths teacher because he was a cisgender man who was kind to me and that hadn't really Mm. happened before. Yeah, the bar for us is quite low, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say nothing inappropriate happened, but I don't know if he was a queer person or not. Whether he was or not, he really clearly recognised that I was struggling, clearly recognised that I was a queer kid. And he really went out of his way to kind of keep me safe. I certainly wasn't the only person to have a crush on him. He was quite a handsome man, but doomed. On the subject of your dad, by the way, briefly, well, it's not a universal experience that someone has such a change of policy. Was there a particular moment where he started to accept who you were and who you were going to be? Or was it just time and a greater understanding? I think that one. Yeah, I think, so I came out as trans kind of quite late. I think I was like 31 when I came out, which is Mm. kind of quite advanced, really. Again, I think that reflects the age I was born into. But I think my dad recognised there was a huge distance between us Mm. and that there was going to have to be a lot of structural work to build a bridge, Mm. like years and years of construction. But I think the difference between my mum and my dad is that my dad doesn't care what people think of him. He's incredibly gregarious, hugely confident. He's never doubted himself. Whereas my mum, when I came out, my mum was really, really worried what people were going to think. And she really struggled with it. Mm. Like, how does someone living in the suburbs of West Yorkshire tell people that their child is going to change gender? Whereas my dad didn't bat an eyelid. And that's because he genuinely doesn't care what people think. Mm. He didn't see it as a shame that he was going to have to bear or anything like that. No, he doesn't really experience shame. I think maybe because he's a man. (laughs) That's very handy. Very handy. If you could ask him for some tips, that would be lovely because like decades (laughs) worth here. Oh, both of us are pretty (laughs) weighed down by shame. It's not a universal male thing, unfortunately. No. Mm. A question popped into my head here. How has your relationship with masculinity changed post-transitioning, post-being who you actually are? I think now 
the signifiers of gender that we have in this world, I think they're there for us to play with. Mm. And I think it's quite exciting. I think we're entering an age where these things that we have coded, hairstyles, clothes, toys, colours, whole colours which have been gendered, Mm. I think they're there to play with. And, you know, I was at Mighty Hoopla a couple of weekends ago, and the trend this year was men in skirts. And I wouldn't even say these were kilts. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of Scottish about them. There were no tartans. <laughs> it wasn't a wedding. <laughs> a lot of kind of leather kilts, pink kilts, sequined skirts, a lot of men in crop tops. And yeah, this is queer men, I guess. But I think sometimes queer people have always been the forefront. Right. And it's the old sex in the city adage of first comes the gays, then comes the girls, and then comes everyone else. <laughs> and I think that's somewhat true. But I think we're entering an age where those rules around gender are being relaxed. And you see it with parents allowing children to make their own decisions about clothes and hairstyles and makeup. I just think we're relaxing. When I first transitioned, there was a brief kid in a candy star moment where I was like, I'll take one of them and one of them and one of them and just pulling things off shelves. Before I was like, that's not really my style. And actually my style is kind of masculine. You know, I like the Kate Blanchett approach to the red carpet. I like that kind of slight androgyny. Mm. And I think it's up to you as an individual to kind of figure out what signifiers of gender you want to fuck with, I guess. Yeah, which is very different from what we were talking about in your childhood. It Ooh. feels like somebody that was in your position growing up in an identical position would not necessarily have to wait until they were 31 to make these steps. Well, there will be critics who will be listening to this, possibly. Actually, they won't, because they wouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't be interested. <laughs> the gender-critical people would listen to this and say, my gosh, possibly, you know, Juno is just a man who needed a My Little Pony when they were a kid. You know, No, because all the My Little Ponies in the world wouldn't have changed that future I imagined for myself. And when I imagined my future, it wasn't a man in a kilt. It was a woman, Mm, you know, and so that was what I needed to do to sort of actualise myself. And do you still have a kind of parallel you in your head or has it kind of just come into one now? Are you now the real deal? Yeah, this is it. You know, now when I imagine my future, it's kind of exciting because I can properly sort of embrace getting older. You know, I just turned 40. Mark can definitely relate to that. That's (laughs) enough of that, Michael. Carry on, do you know? (laughs) So now I can look to role models of women who are in their sort of 40s Mm. and 50s and be less scared, you know, Aging used to be something that I was quite petrified of. And now I'm just kind of like, well, no, this is amazing because, you know, look at Mary Portis or Sarah Jessica Parker. You know, there are so many, you know, powerful women for me to look up to. Laverne Cox, Janet Mott. But it was hard for you to have those sort of role models before you were completely settled in your own sense of self. Yeah, there really wasn't a future. I was kind of just ricocheting from one drunk night out to the next if I'm honest do you see or do you like to see yourself as a potential role model do you know because you've put a lot of work out there you've talked about this stuff more than most people have do you hope that people will see you as a a kind of an example um I'm happy to be if it helps because of course I looked up to people like Paris or Isla before me I don't see many people asking to be role models because actually it's a bit of a poison chalice Mm. I always say I'm happy to do it as long as part of what you learn from me is that I am fundamentally flawed Mm -hmm. and will make mistakes Mm. that's the problem we're at at the moment which is again that this notion of cancel culture is one of those moral panic buttons quick let's press the cancel culture button yeah people are hungry to spot mistakes wherever they can yeah it's really difficult and you know particularly 
particularly role models from marginalised backgrounds, which is why the Raheem Sterlings of this world have been so crucified in the press in a way that their white, straight counterparts kind of haven't been. Mm. So You're absolutely right. No one really asks to be a role model. I suppose a more specific version of my question would be, do you feel the responsibility in your work to convey particular things? Mm. I'm only asking because as a writer myself, it's different for me because I don't represent any of the things that you do. But nonetheless, I think it's interesting how much you are and aren't responsible for what people take from your writing. I think it's by mostly write YA fiction, certainly Stone of the Day is a YA novel. Yeah. And I'm very mindful of that. But the worst thing you can do in a YA novel is preach. Yeah. Mm. And say, this is how you need to live your life. And this is, if you are a good person, good things will come to you because that's just not how life is. And I always imagine my readers are kind of like super clued up 15, 16, 17 year olds who've lived a bit. They've got a bit of life experience and they've experienced some of the painful truths that I'm talking about. And, you know, in Stone of the Day, there's a character called Rowan, who he's a young gay man, but his life is kind of chaotic, you know, and Mm. he's finding it very hard to make connections. Then his little sister Willow has been in an eating disorder clinic and their older sister Fern is frantically trying to sort of keep everything together and she's trying to be the boss of the family, kind of. And so the three siblings are kind of damaged in their own ways and that's the same things that my readers are experiencing as well. Or if they're not themselves, they certainly know people who are. Yeah. It's formative, isn't it? I mean, I've read some of your young adult stuff and as well, Patrick Ness, I found really gorgeous, some of his writing. Oh, he's amazing. It's magical realism that he writes, but there's always a queer representative somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not their storyline, it's just who they are. And the more that we have that, I think, it helps young people with their world building. Sadly, there's not enough YA fiction, I think, at the moment that does that in quite the same way as you are doing it or Patrick's doing it. And I think it's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. That was important to me, you know, there's a male role model, Russell T. Davis, who has been an amazing professional role model to me. He's so Mm. generous with his time and his mentorship. And as a young writer in my 20s, I saw that Russell, whatever it was he was writing, whether it was Doctor Who or whether it was Bob and Rose or Queer as Folk, he just inhabited his world with loads of gay, queer, lesbian characters, trans characters. And so I was like, well, you should do that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't massively interested in telling coming out narratives. There is always going to be a place for a coming out story because coming out is really hard. But I wasn't personally that fussed about telling coming out stories. It's normal life beyond that is what we need to hear about. Well, that was my thing. So when I wrote Clean, which is my biggest novel, Mm. I was just coming out as trans and I was writing it kind of in the eye of the storm. Mm. And I don't think it's a mistake that there's a peripheral trans character in Clean who has been out for about seven years. And I think that was because I needed to imagine what my life was going to be like in seven years. Like, what's it going to be like when the dust has settled a little bit? When it wasn't dramatic, when it was just everyday life. Exactly, yeah, when it's just who I am. And, you know, the character of Kendall in Clean, it's about a rehab clinic. She's in the clinic, but it's nothing to do with the fact she's trans. She has an eating disorder, so... Mm. Yeah. If you could send a message to a young person now who is going through gender dysphoria or they're questioning who they are or they know who they are, but they don't know how to get to who Mm -hmm. they are, what would you say... I would say it feels like a very motherly thing to say, but I would say patience. Mm. You've got a lot more time than you think you have. Do you know what? It's true of trans people at any stage of their transition or any stage of their life. Once you've figured out who you are, tomorrow can't come quickly enough. Mm. You know, you want the changes to happen yesterday. This is such a cause of stress for young trans people, especially at the moment, because 
treatment for young trans people in the UK at the moment is an absolute shit show, absolute clusterfuck at the moment. And so there's a lot at the moment of really young, very panicky trans people worrying that their chance is slipping away from them. And that's not the way to think. It's not the way to think because here's the thing. It happens really, really slowly anyway. Transition, it's a lifelong process. You know, one of the more ill-informed questions you get is, you know, when are you finished? Mm. As if, you know, there's a day where you graduate from trans school. And it just doesn't happen like that. A pink mortarboard or something. Exactly. So, you know, I was trans the day I was born. I will be trans on the day I die. It's not something you go through. It's who you are. Mm. Being trans is going to affect my entire experience on this planet. Although, don't get me wrong, starting my medical transition gave me a degree of control over the uncontrollable. But I would say to a young trans person, there's lots of things you can do to take control of your life that aren't just getting into the medical system. You know, mm. there are so many ways you can socially transition through changing your hair, your clothes, your makeup, all those gender signifiers mm. that we talked about. You can change your name, you can change your pronouns, you know, you can build that support network around you. And so that when, if, because not all trans people want to medically transition, come the day that you do start a medical transition, it's just one more part of a bigger process. Mm. That's really brilliant. Thank you. I feel like I want to carry on talking, but we do yeah. have a final question, okay. which is if you had to build three qualities into a person to best equip them to kind of move forward in the world, what would you put into them? Ooh, does everybody say kindness? No, it comes up sometimes, but or sometimes people find stealthy ways of saying it, like compassion or something. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a big believer. The phrase kindness has been really weaponized, which yeah. is why I'm really reluctant to use it. Because you're like, yeah. wow, that's crazy racist. Whatever happened to be kind? You're like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. this is wild. Yeah, like, of all the words we didn't think we'd end up being tired of. <laughs> I think it's okay to call you racist racist. Yeah. <laughs> but that kind of general sense of live and let live. Mm-hmm. which I think is sadly lacking from some people. Mm. You do you, I'll do me, we're both fine, that's fine. Like a tolerance level, sort of. A tolerance level. Although I don't like the word tolerance either, because I think you tolerate hay fever. Right. Yeah, it suggests a sort of grudging accommodation of something rather than actual supportiveness. That's yeah. true. Yeah, you tolerate a sty, not <laughs> transphobia. Kind of, you know, so it's kind of like... <laughs> the second one that I'm a big, big fan of is self-depreciation. I can't bear arrogance. I really like people who are able to laugh at themselves. I think it's the most important trait Mm. that, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, how in the hell are you going to laugh at somebody else? (laughs) Absolutely. And then I think my last one, and this is a personal one, is I guess I'm going to say emotional literacy Mm. and communication. And certainly that is something that I need in my friends and lovers. Mm. I need people who are able to just say what it is they're thinking. And I realised, I found out that the hard way. It was only really when I met my husband and I was kind of like, what is it that works? And it's that there's nothing we can't talk about. Mm. I spent a lot of time trying to read mixed signals from men. What a fucking waste of time. I could have <laughs> taken up macrame or something. I could have learned a foreign language. You've still got time for macrame, do you know? <laughs> it's never too late for macrame. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you so much. It's been honestly really wonderful, Gina. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it will be inspirational to a lot of people, I think. Thank you very much, Gina. Thanks. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Obviously, your new book and things. Where can people find that? Stay Another Day, out right now. So yeah, Stay Another Day, it's a lovely Christmas story. It's going to be my last YA novel for a little while. Oh, okay. And I'm going out with a lovely Christmas present. So it's been 10 years since my first book came out. So it's a little gift back to my readers. And the title comes from E17's Christmas hit, presumably. It absolutely does, yeah. So that's a little nod to my older readers, but yeah. it also makes sense <laughs> within context. I promise. <laughs> It'll make sense when you get to the end of the book, yes. Okay. Gorgeous. Where can people find that? Is that just in all the usual book places? In all good bookshops. But I believe if you go to the Lighthouse Bookshop, which is a queer radical bookshop in Edinburgh, you can get signed copies. Oh, I know Ooh. what that is, in fact. Yeah, that's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. And um, will there be an audio one? There is. Yeah, it's amazing. I got to pick the actors. I got to play casting director. Oh, so it's also right. in Edinburgh. So we've got um, two very talented Scottish readers. Oh, very nice. Did you reprise your uh, racist casting director thing or did you just go non-racist this time? I went fully non-racist. We were open <laughs> to all. We were completely colorblind. It didn't matter. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Juno. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks a lot, Juno. Bye. That was Juno Dawson. That chat took place several weeks ago, but uh, the book that she talked about at the end is out now this week this week I believe on Thursday it's going to be very good do you know well if any of her previous books are to go by it's going to be a good one I really enjoy them all that probably will be a good thing to go by she won't have decided to write a shit one this time well one would hope not um, but she's very articulate lovely conversation as well um, uh, more articulate than us I would say actually yeah she used some words where you're sort of thinking well I do know what that means but I wouldn't have slipped into conversation myself <laughs> absolutely we spoke a lot about my athletics my monumental achievement and all those things it, it's hard to get away from it yes well, and course. it will be for the next year but how has your week been <laughs> God, just imagining. Um, <laughs> and of course, it's the third anniversary of my marathon run. <laughs> well, Michael, I've had a uh, sort of, uh, I suppose, in some ways, less... Less impressive? Yes, less impressive, yeah. Uh, yeah. less luminous <laughs> week, uh, less show-offy <laughs> week. Um, but what I have been doing is uh, continuing my own personal marathon of doing an incredible number of stand-up comedy shows. And in fact, we are in, we're not just in Newcastle... For the good of our health, well, you live here, but the reason we're, we're both here is you're going to come and see me perform in a couple of hours' time. Yes, well, hopefully it's a good show. I think it will be, yes. <laughs> like Juno, I've decided to put good rather than bad work into the world where possible. What's it um, called, Mark? It's called This Can't Be It, and uh, this is going to be, or should be a good one because the Newcastle Stand is a favourite venue of mine, but... Uh, once again it behoves me to mention that I will be in about another thousand venues after this and ever since I started saying if you're a podcast listener come and say hello I have met said we might get some tonight um, well that would be lovely especially because I think we once mentioned you were coming tonight and that will do it surely <laughs> if I'm listening to Mankind I'm anywhere near Newcastle I wouldn't even bother coming to the show but I'd come to the bit at the end where you, where you can see me um, so yes please do keep coming uh, and watching my shows if you would like to but also if you do do that and I say this every week but it is really rewarding come and have a chat yeah absolutely and if you aren't able to come to one of Mark's many brilliant tour dates around the UK um, for which you can buy tickets I believe on your website or Google or something like that um, you can get in touch with us on Instagram and Twitter at Menkind Podcast or by emailing us at menkindpodcast at gmail.com Yes, and you can also leave nice reviews mm. for us, and we really love that. We love praise, don't we? We do love praise. Five stars really gives me a warm glow for the whole day. Yeah, and not just the stars, but the, it's a bit like a charity, isn't it? Five stars could feed this boy <laughs> for a week. But it's also the um, people sometimes write genuinely quite kind of uh, emotive things uh, in the comments. So, yes, all of that 
is not just appreciated, but poured over slightly more obsessively than most people probably yeah, do. We do appreciate this lovely <laughs> little community we've built. And talking of this community we've built, we've got a lovely other person joining us next week, the Menkind family, who is Freddie McConnell. Yes, Freddie is a journalist, multimedia journalist is one way um, he's been described. And among other things, he conceived and gave birth to a child yes. as a trans man. I've never talked to anyone like this before. Yeah. I, think I can honestly say that. A brilliant uh, film to watch ahead of next week, if you're interested, is The Seahorse Film, which, uh, he, which is all about him and his, his pregnancy journey. He's honestly truly brilliant. It's going to be a great episode. I couldn't say brilliant then. Did you hear? I kind of went brute instead. That was clever of you, though, to suggest that they... Because if you watch the film beforehand, you will, you'll get even more out of the... Uh... Not often we set homework. I was but... just going to say, this is an odd precedent now where... <laughs> As soon as you log off from the podcast, you have to do more work. But still, let's see. Let's see. I, I do think it's worth it. The, the film is obviously really moving. Yeah. Um, and it will put into context the chat we had with Freddie. So again, kind of new ground for the podcast. I don't think I've I certainly never encountered. I've never had a conversation quite like it. Before. No, it's a good one. One to look forward to. And until then, um, goodbye. Yeah, that's, that's a I was thinking to say something about ear holes then, like I said before, but I got confused in the middle of it, so I just left it. I think until then, goodbye pretty much sums things okay. up. Yeah. Until then, goodbye. Bye. Wiggle on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.